This afternoon, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we can look together, and um, I'm going to read the Word of God. The Word of God says this, For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which were strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And these are the words of God, and let those have ears, let them hear. And so what we're seeing here is uh, this, Paul is on a missionary journey. He's been traveling. He is, uh, plant, he's planting churches. He's preaching the gospel in all different areas. And he has arrived uh, 50 miles southwest of Athens to a place called Corinth. It's a place that's known for its pagan and vile uh, uh, activities and moral practices. And there were about 200,000 people that lived in this city. And they reside, had res- residents there of a variety of group of people. So you had Jews and you had all different types, Gentiles and Jews combined in this city. But as Paul was preaching to the Jews, he was testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And they began to reject him and oppose him and revile him, him, they said. And in Acts 18, 5 and 6, we see this. And so Paul turns his focus now on the Gentiles. And this city is very diverse. It had people of Greeks and Romans and people of the what we would call the Middle East. Um, it had business people. It had poor people, government officials. It had slaves. It had freemen. And so you can see why these, uh, this was a prime place to go and plant a church and reach the people to the ends of the earth. Uh, in this vision that the Lord gave him, he was received comfort that there are elects in this city. There are people there that will be saved and that he doesn't have to fear attacks, uh, that he can trust in the sovereignty of God and, and, that, and his preaching of the word. And so that is something that we should be also remembering as well, that when we go and evangelize and speak the truth, that we can know that God has his people chosen, and God has his people in his hands, and he knows who's who, and, and you don't need to manipulate anything. You don't need to manipulate a, a prayer or anything. You just need to preach the word, let the Bible be sufficient, and they will come to Christ and, and his timing. And so with this assurance from the Lord... We see that Paul remained there for about a year and a half, and he is doing what the work of a missionary would do. Go, preach the gospel, just make disciples, and he's preaching to diverse people groups, and he's planting a church. And this is the pattern that we see in the, in the New Testament of church planting. And so this church is now planted, it's established, but pride crept in into this church. 
And it began to infest the lives of the people, the ordinances of the people. It, it began to corrupt uh, even their spiritual gifts and their, their use of these gifts. And so we see that Paul is made aware by some fellow believers that some things are going on. And so he's aware that there's some heinous behavior taking place. And Paul takes on this difficult task of church discipline. And this is something that no pastor likes to do, but he gives us a really good example of how to do it. Because he's fully aware of their sinful deeds, and he could have easily said, you guys are messed up, and I don't want anything to do with you guys. I regret that I ever came to your city, but he didn't do that. He pastors this flock in a way that is like the sheep that are on the edge of a cliff about to fall off and into destruction, and he's gently bringing them back to truth. And so Paul addresses them not by attacking, but by reminding them who they are in Christ. And so we see this loving tone and words of edification before he's about to address these serious issues. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you. And then he goes and he reminds them who they are in Christ. He says, you have been given grace. You have been enriched in him. You have, you have given the grace of God. You are the people of God. You have been enriched and you're not lacking in spiritual gifts. And then he says they are believers. He doesn't write them off that they're not believers, even though they're behaving sinfully. In verse 2, he calls them the church of God. Those who have been sanctified in Christ. So he's reminding them to be holy, that you are saints. And then in verses 10 and 26, he calls them brothers. And so this is a, a gentle way of starting off some hard talk and he's about to do. And so Paul is placing this mirror of conviction before their eyes. He's exposing their sinful practices, comparing it in contrast to who they are in Christ, and loving words that will cut the heart as they will see the reflection of nonconformity in the image of Christ, the one who bought them with a price. And so what we see in this church is that they're not lacking in spiritual gifts. They enjoy the ability of speech and knowledge, as the word says, which is evidence of Christ working in them. He acknowledges their gifts, but he reminds them, this is not because of anything you've done. This is a gift from God. This is a gift of grace. And he elevates their understanding of the spirit-filled believer while humbling them and bringing them to remembrance that they are undeserving, weak vessels whom God has called for his glory. And so what we see in these, these verses, in verses 26 and 27, is that he chooses the unworthy. And we can all testify to that. I, I'm a prime example of that. And so we see in that verse 26 and 27, he uses these key words. He uses that he, that he did not call the many wise according to the flesh, not the mighty, not the noble, not the foolish, and not the wise, and not the weak. And he chose the weak things. And so why would he choose these kind of words? Why would he start saying, calling these people weak and not noble and not mighty? And in other words, you're not all that. Why would he start saying these things? Well, the, there was infighting. They were puffed up. They, they started fighting and arguing about what teacher they had. And uh, I, I sat under this teaching, and this guy baptized me, and all these kind of things. And so, it, all of, and it's very similar to what we see today with affiliations with famous pastors. And, and this is my, my pastor, or online pastor that I like, and he taught me this, and online personalities and denominations. And we, we began to become loyal to those 
those things rather than Christ and the word itself. And it can often divide the temple of God and his people by popularity, class, and spiritual uh, abilities. However, Paul crushes their pride. He's reminding them that God did not use his eloquent speech, uh, but in his weakness, lest the cross of Christ be emptied in his power. He says that in verse 17. And then God did not choose to save them because of their earthly wisdom or power and nobility, but because of their spiritual lowliness to bring glory to Christ. That is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their sinfulness and those who mourn over their sins and blessed are the weak, the meek. And this is, this is why God chose us. That brings God glory. And the Corinthians needed to understand that without Christ, we are nothing. We have nothing within ourselves to boast about. Our salvation, our sanctification, and our spiritual gifts are not our own. And the Corinthians church, they had took their eyes, taken our eyes off of Christ and turned their attention on self-gratification. And that's easy for us to fall into. They were Christians that were without a desire to become spiritually mature. They were babies clinging to the breast of complacency, satisfied with milk, underdeveloped, and they could not handle the deep spiritual truths, crawling and stumbling across the pilgrim's path. And they were not lacking spiritual gifts while they remained in the flesh. And so they were swelled with pride. They took their, made idols of teachers and prestige and good gifts of grace, boasting in their spiritual uh, abilities and belittling those that maybe were less, had the less glamorous gifts. And they took these gifts, like the gift of tongues and prophecy, that were God's tools to reverse Babel, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, and they used it to divide the body of Christ. And they crossed the line, uh, going beyond what is written. That's what we see in verses four and, uh, four, chapter 4, 6. They puffed up in favor of one against another, it says. Oh, how we have sadly seen that in the church. We've seen that where oftentimes we will go and we will go what, beyond what is written and we'll allow these things to divide. Sometimes we'll divide over because I have all this doctrine in my head that I can be unloving or that I just want to love people and tolerate people and tolerate their sins and not speak truth. And you're loving them to hell. And then you have others that would just be, teach half-truths or watered-down truths and that divides the body of Christ and hurts the body of Christ. And so Paul would remind the Corinthians to remember that you are not your own. He reminds them that Christ bought them with a very high price, the blood of his own precious blood. Christ humbly came off of his throne, and he dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us. He took on human flesh as our substitute. He walked on this earth and lived a life that we could not live. He bore the punishment that you and I could not deserve, do not deserve. And in Philippians, it says, have that attitude. Be lowly, be humble like Christ. And he did all this for, our, for the glory of God. And this is how we should live. And Christ is our true wisdom. He is the Lagos. He is the word. He is the revealer in him who dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No man knows the Father but the Son, and he whom the Son shall reveal to him. And so God just not only uses the undeserving, but also the unlikely. He uses dust 
to become image bearers. He used Noah, the drunk. He used Abraham and Isaac, the liars, and Jacob, the thief, and David, the adulterer and the murderer, the 12 disciples that were uneducated fishermen. And he used the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee and persecutor of the church. He used examples of modern ones, Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, but yet was a tormented priest and couldn't guard his tongue. And so we see that he uses people that are not likely to be used so that he may be glorified. And so who were these members in this church? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it tells us, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or nor effeminate, or nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, where will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's reminding them that you're not all that. You were messed up. You still still have some work to do. But you have been washed, and he's elevating them now. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And this is, this is a great reminder for us that God uses the nothings. In 28 and 29, we see that he says these words, that the, and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen. And you think about what he's saying there. He uses the, what the world looks down on and despises those who are, by human standards, are common and contemptible. One can think of the caste system in, in India. Everyone basically looks the same, for the most part speak the same language, and yet if you're born into a certain culture, you are a family, have a certain last name, you are considered nothing, and there's nothing you can do about it. And he's reminding us of that. This is what the world what they think is, is elevated, the, the famous people, and they look at that, they are nothing he values. What God values is, is nothing uh, in his plan of redemption. What the world looks at as, as, as precious and, and as uh, what is of, of great value, he considers nothing. And God chooses, chose the nothings for his glory. He chooses the nobodies to help the somebodies to realize that the nobodies that somebodies are nobodies as well. And that's, that's something that's really important as well to see there, what he's doing. So if you go into dark streets, you go down to the inner city of Baltimore, in the dark alleys and in the, in the inner city ghettos, you'll find sinners. You go to San Francisco and these encampments of homeless encampments, you'll find sinners. You go into uh, Nairobi and you go into the slums there, you will find sinners. But you also, you go to the suburbs, you'll find sinners. You go into abortion clinics and nightclubs and local bars and find sinners. You go to your local schools, your elementary schools. You go to the middle schools and high schools and universities. You will find rebels against God. You'll find sinners. You go into your own dining room table and you'll find sinners sitting at your dining room table. You look in the mirror, you'll find a sinner. But Christ came to die for sinners. And so what we see in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says this, Thus says Yahweh, let, us not, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. Let not, let, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, 
who shows loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Christ is our everything. John Calvin once said, I gave up everything for Christ. And what did I find? Everything in Christ. And so we see in verse 30, it says, but by his doing, that key word, his, his doing, it is his doing. We are saved by Christ alone. We were not wise. We were not righteous. We were not holy. We were not able to save ourselves. Christ is not only wise, he's also our wisdom. And previously, God spoke through the prophets, but today he speaks through his son, Hebrews 1.1. The word who was there from the beginning reveals that which was previously hidden, John 1.1. And so B.B. Warfield once said that the Old Testament is like a room, fully furnished and yet dimly lit. In, in other words, you, it was the Old Testament had all these things that you could see but they were hidden from us. We couldn't see them until Christ revealed it and, and his light revealed all these things. Everything was pointing towards Christ. Christ is our righteousness, which allows us to stand before God in the court of divine justice. He is our sanctification, for we can only be holy because he is holy, equipping us to serve him in the temple of divine service. Jesus is our redemption, for we could not save ourselves. God had to intervene. And so what we see, and it reminded me as I was reading this, was that hymn, and it goes like this. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wombs which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. My di his dying breath has brought me life. I know it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, nor wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wombs have paid my ransom. So what we see in, chapter, in verse 31 is the Latin soli deo gloria, all glory to God alone. It says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's ultimate purpose in the proclamation of the crucified Christ, to overthrow all human claims of accomplishment, all boasting in one's human success and a claim in participation with God's wisdom and power in, to highlight the glory of grace as a sheer gift. And so God's election makes man nothing. It makes God everything. And someone once said this. He said, it is not what I have, but Christ who has me. It is not what I can give, but in Christ who gave himself upon the tree it was he and the only and only for his glory that we may have the honor and blessing to proclaim his story and so yes we are wretched sinners that don't deserve the grace of god but at the same time we don't go and sit or stand around and say i'm just nothing and beat have self afflictions i'm nothing i'm a worm I'm, and walking around like that you are also something of value in in christ 
You, we also don't have that extreme where we say, well, I got grace, so I have a license to do what I want. We have to have balance in our lives. And oftentimes people take doctrines of total depravity and they take it to the extremes. But we have to be reminded that, yes, we're wretched sinners, but we've been called for a righteous calling. We've been bought with a price and we've been left here for a purpose of going and making disciples in all the nations. To go and, and be image bearers that represent Christ in all the world and proclaim the gospel because souls are flooding the hell if we don't do what we're called to do. And it reminds me of perhaps you know this uh, poem about the, the violin. And it's a good illustration for this. It goes like this. It says, "'Twas battered and scarred. And the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried, who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, do I hear two? Two dollars, who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no, From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightened up the strings. He played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as angels sing. The music ceased and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now am I to bid for this old violin? As he held it up with its bow, One thousand, one thousand do I hear two. Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going gone, he said. The audience cheered, and some of them cried. We just don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And see, what we see here is that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. We don't deserve anything from God. We deserve hell. The only thing we can contribute is the sin that we we have. And yet, we see in the word of God that he uses dust and makes them image bearers of God. He calls us the chosen. He chose us. And Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He says he calls people that were not noble and worthless and calls them royal. He calls people that were, that were sinful by their nature, that rebelled against, against God, and, and it says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, that you were enemies of God, you were children of wrath, and he says you're holy. You were once, once not his people, and now he says you are his own possession. And why did he buy you with a price? He says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We were not his people, but now we are the children of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And he is on the throne reigning right now, sovereign over all things, caring for his bride, waiting for the day for his return. And so what I want us to take from this is that we are to live for Christ in all things that we do, that we bring him glory in all that we do, and that we are to conform ourselves to the image of Christ and strive to be holy and pleasing to him. And we are to proclaim Christ because time is short and there are people that are flooding to hell 
in our homes, in our families, in our, in our school systems, in our communities, and time is of the essence. And so let us be about the Father's business and this righteous calling he's given us. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given us your word. And I thank you that you remind us that we are weak and we are not of, uh, oftentimes we don't know what to say. We may not have talents that other people have. We may look at other people and say, well, I can't sing or I can't preach or I can't do that. I don't know why you chose me. And yet he will use us. You will use us. And it will be for our good and for your glory. And I pray, Lord God, that each one of us would be reminded that we are a treasure in the eyes of Christ, that we, are, we, are, we have received this gift of grace. And so let us live for Christ in all that we do, in all that we say, all for the glory and, and for the proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Jesus' name, amen.